Hello and welcome to the Shakti Hour podcast on Ramdas's Be Here Now Network. I'm your host, Melanie Moser, and today we are returning to the Shakti Sacred Music series featuring conversations about sacred music and the feminine voice. My guest today is the esteemed David Silver, who has been a co-host with Raghu Marcus on Mind Rolling in the past, and you will find him on many of the Be Here Now Network podcasts. We listened to a song by one of his favorite artists named Carnarita. The song is Mirabai from her album Dossi Prayers by Women. We just play a snippet of it here for you to listen to. Please remember you can hear the full songs and gather more information at shaktisacredmusic.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Shakti Hour, and all of this information is found at beherenownetwork.com on the Shakti Hour page. Please do remember to subscribe to the Shakti Hour on iTunes and leave us a rating and review. And thank you so much for listening. We're going to listen to uh, a friend. Uh, she's called Karnam Rita, and um, she is an American, or maybe she's Canadian. Uh, don't know. <laughs> but she's North American, and she's a Kirtan singer. Uh, what we're going to listen to is a, a song called Mirabai, who is Mirabai. And it's not call and response, it's just, I believe, it's just her singing. And I find her to be incredibly atmospherically transformative. And uh, I've known her for about 25, 30 years. And um, she performs all over the place. And anybody who comes into contact with her feels the same way about her. And where did, where did, you, where did you meet? Good question. Um, I don't remember, but it has to be New York, Northampton, Massachusetts, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Maui, or Taos. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't remember, but I know that whenever I see her, we're, we're very, um, we love each other. I just, I just recommended her for something. I do that sometimes because she's, I just think she's hypnotic and one of the most authentic of Western Kirtan singers, because when she sings, she sings like those incredible women who we don't know usually who they are in, in India, who are, I think, they sound like an angelic host. Mm. And that's the way I feel about Karnam Rita. Mm. This song is called Mirabai. Let's hear it. Reduces me to sort of like a molecule when I, when I hear her sing. Yeah. You know. Um, well, we're going to. That's another one. I have two. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't understand any of the words. None, zero. Uh, I know the songs called Mirabai. Um, that's what I like about it, because I don't want to understand the words sometimes, you know, because it just still hits an intellectual or verbal level. Hmm. I want it to be beyond that always. Hmm. And I know um, it's weird because I've seen her sing quite a lot, and I never understood anything she's ever sung, really. <laughs> I think I've asked her. By the way, I met her in Los Angeles, I just remembered, in okay. Topanga Canyon, Ragu introduced me to her and we recorded her. I think we recorded this. Hmm. And um, since then, I've, I've shamed us, my, can't even say his name without tears, my dearest friend, um, he had her sing on the Bhakti boat um, hmm. journeys up to Hudson. Hmm. And the last time I saw her, Shamdas and Sharada Devi and Krishna Das and um, Kanam Rita were the singers. And uh, along with um, uh, my friend Shruti and his group. And we were on this boat and she was wearing a cap and an outfit that looked like 1969 Georgie girl. She <laughs> just did the 60s look about her. And she's a real person. I mean, she's a, a, a down-to-earth woman who you can talk to about anything. But ah, there's just something indescribable about her effortlessness. She just is like those great, great Indian singers who are effortless. Yeah, I mean, it's so India, but it's so Western, too. I mean, it, it's hmm. like a, it's almost um, more accessible because it's not such, so, such high chops. I mean, mm. everybody that's playing, all the playing is yeah. pro and really well done, mm. but it's not so flourished and completely unattainable. Right. But it's coming through in this such a beautiful, still such a pure and beautiful way. But there is this Western element with the snaps and just the, and kind of the basicness of it. Yes. And not to, I'm not mm. saying that in any kind of diminishing way at no. all. But there's a simplicity that really blends the Western and the Eastern in yeah. such a nice way. Yes, I, you know, uh, she, um, when, you, when you see her live, um, it's an experience that is always somehow uplifting. It, it just takes me out of myself. And, and that doesn't happen that often with me, actually, um, unfortunately. <laughs> but... It, I guess I reserve it for those that I that karmically or whatever appeal to my my bio the rhythms my etc. But with her, um, she's also a highly professional singer who always knows exactly what she wants and what she needs. Mm. And um, you know, that's frequently the case at this advanced stage of of kirtan in America. It's not like other people who are not a professional. They're a, lots of very professional singers, but she has been there for a long time. I remember when I first met her, uh, Conor Rita is very beautiful in a, in a, a kind of a, a way you cannot categorize. Mm. She's, she just looks the part, and not that she tries, mm. she just is that way. And she's a woman who sometimes will wear Indian stuff and other times won't. She, she's very Western. She's very popular in Australia and New Zealand. She's very popular in many places. Mm. Um, because anyone who's ever seen her or heard her 
wants her back, you know, because mm. she, she's great. And Chamdas was the same way. Uh, he felt that if he were, if she's in New York and he's doing his sail on the boat, the Bhakti boat, um, that she should be on it. Mm. And um, she was. And, you know, we were all entranced. They were, we're in a lovely day in August or something. And sky is blue, the clouds are fluffy, the water is calm. And you know when you're on a boat, there's that sort of feeling of calmness. It doesn't sort of exist anywhere else. To hear her sing in that atmosphere was a great privilege for me. That sounds transcendent. I mean, yep. it sounds beautiful. It was. <laughs> it was. And I was sitting next to KD, and um, KD is as benign and, and, and wonderful as he is. He's very critical and um, sharp uh, about these things. And he was like me, eyes closed, just gone. And that to me is sacred, a sacred experience. It's so sacred. And it's also so, you know, there's something about um, not knowing what someone is saying. Right. I know that I know that there's a, um, Katie has a story, Krishna Das has a story that I've heard him tell about someone uh, coming to his event and complaining that he sang songs in English. <laughs> at one point mm. and and reflecting on how how that was triggering in the in the mind yes and how this isn't necessarily you're not necessarily reflecting on the hindi or the sanskrit or whatever she's singing in but it really is that the the word is transcended by the energy of yes. her voice precisely yeah. yeah yes yes i mean i i you know i i love it when KD sings Jesus on the Mainline. He's been doing that for about 45 years, and, and, and it's great. Uh, but I'm always sort of relieved when he gets back to singing in a language that I don't get. I mean, I, I don't want to know the meaning of the words usually, unless they're very specifically about one of the great, you know, sort of deities. Um, and, you know, it's Krishna or, or Rama or Sita or... Radha, all those people, yes, if it mentions them, okay, so Sharda Devi, for instance, doing Sita Ram is the same thing for me. That when she sings that song, which she sings at every kirtan she ever does, as far as I know, again, gone. And, and I mean, I'm very selfish about it. If he doesn't do that for me, I, you know, I, I'm not there, you know. Now, one of the things I would say, because I know that... You, you will, I think, appreciate this, having been a, a, a musician in, in the Western mode, too. I've had intensely spiritual experiences with the most unlikely sources, you know. Um, and they're, they're quite, when I think about it, it, it blows my mind that, that, that I did have that experience with these people. Um, Ronnie Lane, who was with Faces, and Rod Stewart uh, does a song called Stones or Stone or something. Ronnie's not with us anymore, but he it's a song about reincarnation. And every time I hear it, it actually does more for me on that basically construct than I can imagine because it's so simple, you know. Now, when I listen to, uh, I mean, you asked me about a list of women. Um, I've had amazing experiences with women blues players. Um, 
over the years. And, and you know, Jesse May Hemphill would be the one I would pick out. Um, I went to see Jesse um, at the Schomburg Center in, on August the 15th, 1989. And uh, it was astonishing to me that this older woman playing a Strat was beyond anything I'd ever heard before. It was just a phenomenal energy that was going to use the word energy before. And I like that word when it comes to music because it does either energize you or it, it, it does other things too. But if it energizes you, is that sacred? It depends. In the case of a Jesse May Hemphill, it was sacred to me because I was just turned into stone. All my thoughts went away. I watched, watched this woman who must have been at that time in her 60s or maybe older, and I just thought, what a human being. What a, an astonishing human being. Lives in a trailer somewhere, true. She just brought upon that audience in Harlem a quietness, really. It wasn't a whoopee-doo whooping and screaming thing. We were all amazed. I'd never heard of her before that moment, and. You know, I think she's gone now. Um, gospel you, singing too, you know. Do you think it has to do with the, is there a difference in the the masculine and the feminine voice? Oh, yes. Because you mentioned the faces, so. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, I think there's a woman singing now called Samantha Fish, I think she's called. Blues singer who's just phenomenal. And I'm so picky about blues because I am a blues player myself and I've been involved with the blues and I've filmed everyone. <laughs> Sorry for the braggadocio, but I love the blues and women have a great place in that genre, obviously. Uh, Susan Tedeschi and Bonnie Raitt and, and that Caucasian strain is remarkable because it wasn't easy. And Bonnie is one of the greatest guitar players in the world, still, always was. I knew her when she was 16. Uh, she used to play on the street on Mass Avenue in Cambridge, opposite Harvard. And so when I met her, and Taj Mahal and her used to play on the street together every day. And there was a, a sort of a Carnaby Street type mod store that I frequented, and they'd play in there when it was raining or cold. And you know, I couldn't believe my ears, how great it was. Now, is there a a difference in sacred kirtan type music, devotional music? Yes, there is. Just as there's a difference between the two genders in life, the mother coming through, sure it can come through, you know, a male singer, frequently does. But sometimes I hear women singing and it just overwhelms me and you know, makes me understand that the universe, if you can understand it at all, the mother is at least half the, the understanding, you know, that we are born into this universe and the divine mother is always present. So when even, I mean, can think of other women, Wa is, 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 is I think, very special, always has been is a real warrior for the form, a strong woman, amazingly adept, you know, and I saw her many, many, I haven't seen her for quite a time. She's a lovely person too, and I, I, but when I used to see her in, way back in the 70s and 80s, 
I just was, wow, we can do this. I mean, Westerners can do this. You know, they can actually pull this off. And it is the presence. Now, with, with Khan and Rita, it's the effortlessness of the, of, the, of the performance that gets to me. Because it's, when it's overdone, it never works. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons KD and others are so uh, beloved, whether it's conscious or subconscious, it's that thing of not forcing the issue upon the call and response dynamic. It's quiet. It's, it's very rarely over the top. And when it is over the top, it has to be by a master. Uh, and, and you know, it, it doesn't work for me. It has to have that sort of quietude and stillness within it. And I think women maybe have got that down better. And I can't be specific. Well, but, it's interesting you know, you're saying about the mother and, and thinking just on these really, really basic ideas of masculine and feminine that... I think we may be completely getting rid of over the next couple of decades, but yeah. but the idea of the mother being the embodied spiritual, right, on the earth, it's really interesting. Two, one that you're saying that there might be a bit of a advantage in that ease, maybe maybe in the feminine from that grounded mm-hmm. mother energy, but then what's interesting about your reflection of it and several of the men that have come on this series talked about this transporting out of themselves through this music. And so I'm curious of your reflections on that, like with that, that embodied feminine, the mother earthy energy, giving you the experience of becoming out of yourself. Is that a paradox or? (laughs) No, no, not at all. Um, No, you know, you're always honest with yourself, usually, at any rate, about music and art. And I know by this time, pretty immediately, if something is working, you know, uh, if it's establishing in me a, a consciousness which I aspire to, rather than anxiety, egoism, nah, worry. Uh, it, it, it's not escapism, it's transcendence. And it really is transcendent because Ama. Uh, and I'm not a devotee of Amma, and but I've seen her dozens of times, and I go for the kirtan and for her presence, her divine presence, because she, she's the most, probably the most advanced being I've ever been close to, and I don't mean close to personally. I do not know her, but I always try and get close in in these big halls. She does her thing, but it's the kirtan, it's the kirtan, particularly the Malayalam and Tamil. And I have 42 albums by her, um, <laughs> all of which I bought at the events. Hmm. Uh, I'm not a big follower, so I don't do anything more than go to the event. I, 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 nothing else. Um, but You don't need much more than that. I mean, that's a, it's a pretty powerful darshan. And oh to take God. the music back with you, I think. Beyond my ability yeah. to describe. Every yeah. time I see her, I'm astonished at her. One of the things that occurs to me about her, the sacredness of her, is not just singing to God, but it's all of her biography, all of her personal life, which has been, which started off in the most atrocious and oppressive way, is in that that voice that comes out. Mm. And when she cries out to Kali, which she does on the recordings too, Kali, Kali, I'm a very difficult person to change. I just am. (laughs) I'm I'm so English, you know. I was brought up in a tradition where you don't even express your emotions. You know what I mean? 
she just cuts right through it. And the Swami, as she calls him, who does the male part of her kirtan also. And the woman, and I don't know her name, who plays tabla, is to me the greatest tabla player in the world, by far. Mm. And I'm talking about everybody. I just mm. think she's a genius. Mm. And I watch her. She's a, a fairly big woman. And the thing is small in her. And, and she just has complete control of the rhythm of the, of the group. Mm. So you've got her and you've got Arma and then the rest of the musicians. And then, of course, you've got what she talks about and so on. But it's the music that I go for because it works every time. <laughs> Last time I went to her event, there was uh, like two people in my row that like passed out from, <laughs> from Shakti overload. Yes. Yes. It was pretty impressive. Yes. Yeah, that is It's so not, it's so non it's a, so non-threatening, so easy to walk into yeah. this hall and sit and people I think go because they it's accessible and it's free and they've heard about it and so they would have no experience of it and I I was feeling it in that moment. I remember I sat down and like I was like, "Okay, I've got to get grounded." <laughs> and they bing bing these two ladies just gone. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I can't talk, um, you know. And and you know, I've been looking for a harmonium for many years and couldn't find one. And then Raghu wanted to bring one back from India, and, and he couldn't for some reason. And then he was going to give me his spare one, but he and his his uh, wife said, "No, don't give me that because it's got a hard. It's not an easy bellows." It's hard to do, and they know what a softy I am about these things. So I, I sort of gave up on it. And then the last time I saw Arma was in August of 18, and the prize item to purchase was this astonishing harmonium. Oh, you got it there. Yeah, I did. Wow. It was blessed by her, and it's the one that they use. No. Not the one they use on the stage, but it's the same. It's called the same Mr. Model? Mr. Oh. Paul and Company. Or and she, the, the, they were playing it on stage, and then the, there it was in a special place, and, and got it. And so I've been playing it every day since, and it's the way I've most, um, as you know, I broke my wrist, and um, it's the thing that has helped me most of all, because you can only play one hand, obviously. You're doing the bellows, and I've learned to use all five fingers now, and it's more or less been a healing for me, mm. because all of the physical therapy I was taught was inadequate, actually. Mm. But then when I got this keyboard and realized I can't use my left hand at all, I have to use this right broken thing, it's been a, a healing, just by the way, it's been a healing thing. And none of you listening to know this, but the day after I broke my wrist, I met Melanie. And uh, I didn't think I'd broken it or I wouldn't have been out of the house, but I had. <laughs> and um, the truth is that playing the harmonium has been important to me. But the fact that it was blessed by Amachi is everything to me. You know. Well, I mean, this is a bit of a stretch for a segue, but you, you said all of the physical therapy that had been, I mean, you broke your wrist in 31 places. Yeah, it was a, it was a big break. Yeah. Wasn't, was inadequate. And so this kind of brings me into my secret, not so secret agenda, filtering through this series on sacred music. Yeah. And it's just kind of like, um, you know, culture, art, music, that these things aren't separate from spirituality and they're also not separate from he healing. Like the transformative healing power of music for you was not just in the hearing and the listening to it, but then also I love that it's part of the story. <laughs> it was actually in the, in the playing of it. 
And so, um, mm. so that's kind of part of the, what I'm hoping to draw <laughs> into the conversation is mm. this thing that, you know, may, and you can speak to this more. I feel like that was something that was more integrated in the elusive, fantastical 60s and 70s than it is now where I feel like um, those things are a bit more separate. You can go to the yoga studio, you can go to the ama thing and have the musical sacred combo experience. But going so much to having that integrated into our artistic and pop culture lives doesn't seem to be as deep. Am I making that up about the past or the future or the present? No, you're not, but I'm glad you brought it up because I didn't want to bring it up because people of my era frequently do brag about, you know, all of that, Jimi Hendrix and so on, Janis Joplin. And it sounds sort of a little bit, sometimes it sounds a little bit old fogeyish, you know. So what, what about, you know, stuff that's happening now? I, I think music goes through cycles and um, I'm, I, I'm not sure how to define them, but certainly in the, in the, in the late 60s, uh, it, it, it coincided with various um, behaviors. And in the case of John Lennon and Bob Dylan, and I believe Joni and John Baez, they were just sucking in every level of, of what was going on. It was so intense, from political to social to sexual to spiritual, and particularly Lennon who's now, because he's been gone for so long, people don't seem to talk about him so much. But certainly, those people brought about in the audience, and when you bought the record, uh, an expanded consciousness, because they were coming from that place. I can't speak for um, people I didn't know, but I know that the, the, the Beatles, you know, got into um, psychotropic transactions, and saw and experienced another world and never could forget that. So the album Revolver, which came out, I believe, in September 1966, to me was the start of that. And then George Harrison, of course, All Things Must Pass, which to me is the greatest of all the Beatles records, even though it was his solo album. It's the only one I listen to now. Uh, I, I love them, but I, um, I don't like being triggered into melancholy about, wow, what an amazing time that was. And now we have, you know, this battle between uh, various political forces that are, that are very, you know, disturbing to many of us. I think that the 60s um, sort of ended exactly when they ended. So that, you know, um, Gimme Shelter and uh, uh, anything by the Beatles of 68, 69 were the last entrails of that particular strain. But then... I became very deeply involved with, with um, reggae music, and I still am making a film right now uh, about reggae music, and, and, and worked extensively with, with the great masters of reggae music, uh, some of which, most of the, the leads were men, but the, some of the women were astonishing, Marsha Griffiths and Rita Marley and Judy Mowat, and amazing singers. Even though they were officially background singers, if you heard them sing solo, you were mind blown, because it was in the Aretha, you know, level of intensity and of spiritual depth. So I think in the 70s, disco happened, and okay, you know, I loved Donna Summer and all that, but it just suddenly went elsewhere, you know, all that spiritual stuff. So went away, and we were stuck with songs about sex. 
and nothing wrong with that. But <laughs> I'd already gone to the point in my life where I didn't want to hear about that all the time. I'd got used to the idea of, of Joan Byers singing directly to the human experience about what it was and what suffering was and what it was like to be a woman in the 60s and before. And Joni Mitchell, of course. Um, and then Janice's tortured thing, that was incredibly powerful for all of us at that time. Those women were as effective as John Lennon or, or Bob Dylan or, or, or Jagger Richards, etc. Um, I mean, you said this thing about them, the, that they were, how did you say it? It was really good. Uh, they were sucking everything in and then putting that higher consciousness back out yes, to I believe you, so. something like that. I mean, you said it better than that. But. Well, no, I said that. I, um, it, it, it was a two-way street. I, in my film about the Beatles, I start off the film hmm. by saying that they were people of their time. And, and that basically that time was revolutionary in any case. Mm. And so they took from that, but then the remarkable thing is what they gave back changed the times. And it does all the time. I mean, it's not just- Oh, that's cool. You know, so it was, you know, but you saying that makes me think that time is actually different now. Our experience of, mm. I, I had a brief talk with Ramdas last year, kind of about that. We were talking about the, more and more people are awakening now, but there's less, of a kind of a fabric to hold that awakening. So people are plummeting, hmm. kind of doing this a bit more. <laughs> Tell me more about what you think about that, because I really find that interesting. Well, he, Ramdas was saying, it's hard to re relay a conversation with him sometimes because so much of it is yeah. just telepathic right. But, <laughs> right. at this point. But, but um, it was saying that the, this current moment in time, the possibility for awakening is much more mainstream, much more available to more people, as opposed to in that time, it was a really, it was a counterculture. It was really a little blip of awakening, a handful of people that were really doing this work. And that, and that it was partially available to them or to that time because of the structures of the social world at the time. Yes. <laughs> Everything was quite solid with these chaotic, things and then this blip of consciousness opening now there's this the fabric he was saying is not as sturdy hmm. so but the but the potential to awaken is higher and so it causes these dips in in despair for hmm. people because they're awakening without the structure to keep them kind of moving i mean if i think of the and again this is all speculative because you know i was just coming into the world but the I think of that time as this kind of a bunch of you got on this kind of conveyor belt together <laughs> at the same time and moved at a pretty similar pace. And then some of you kept going and some of you went and got jobs on, on wall street. Yes. Right. Yes. But with this time it could be any, any, anybody yes. can turn on Oprah, open up Eckhart Tolle's book, the power of now, have this experience and then have nothing to and no one to support it and have the rest of the world and their Netflix queue reflecting back to them despair, darkness, mm. slow consciousness. Mm. Is that? Well, yeah, it's, an, it's complex because, you know, sort of like the internet and in particular the other platforms 
like Facebook, um, bring about some harmonies and people can agree and then get to know other people who agree that they didn't know, but it also brings about incredible animosity and division and weird dialectic that you just thought you'd never be a part of. But I have to say that the idea that there are whatever number, 20,000, 50,000, whatever number of yoga studios there are in the United States can only be positive. Because even though some people may plummet, as you put it, um, there is now the opportunity in the weirdest places in America to, to go and learn to meditate and so on. And it, it just has permeated. I was watching some local access television show a couple of nights ago, and um, uh, the guest on this show was of a gentleman called Ben Vereen, who is a, a dancer and singer of the sort of showbiz Broadway type, never someone that I really thought about in my life. So he was talking, he's a marvelous human being, and he was just saying that, you know, you've got to have fun, you've got to have fun in life. And then the interviewer said to, to him, and, and explain that more, he said, well, Ram Dass told me that I had to have fun in my life and give fun to other people, so that's what I do. I was thunderstruck. <laughs> I was just thunderstruck, you know, I was randomly going through TV in some bored moment. And there was a guy quoting Ram Dass, who I would never have thought would have, you know, which it shows my prejudices against the whole world, that, you know, many people... The accessibility is there, unfortunately, so is the noise. So you have tremendous amount of stuff coming at you, whereas in the 60s and 70s, you really didn't. So when I first heard, um, let's think of a good example, uh, um, Bob Marley, it was, it was like, oh my God, what is this? It was like a bolt of lightning from the heavens that this human being only existed on a spiritual level, except that he was a normal person. I, mean, I played football with him. I, smoke pot with him, and all those things with him, a lot of normal things. But I knew I was in the presence of what he called a messenger. And in the film that I'm doing, um, he says at one point, uh, he's asked, what is it like to be a superstar where Stevie Wonder and Mick Jagger come to see you backstage? And he said, no, I'm not a superstar, not at all, no, no false modesty. I am a messenger of Jah, that's it, nothing else. And it's true that if you go through his entire work, it's hard to find something. Yeah, there's a few sort of almost Marvin Gage type songs like Jammin' and great romantic songs, but soul reggae, they used to call it. But most of them are directed at, at consciousness. Mm. And he knew that. And so, you know, now, I don't know, it's hard to, it's really hard to be definitive about this because mm. I am older and I'm very scared of being an old fogey putting down the present and thinking that the past was some because what now I will say this I I, I think that I would how did my uh, my progress in, in spiritual grasp if it is such was that my father was a, a Gurdjieff person and and had me reading Gurdjieff at the age of 14 that was my entry into it big but I didn't really get it it was too difficult for me to he got it and I but he at least gave me the opportunity and then Meher Baba came into my life, and the Maharishi because of John Lennon, and then Nimkaroli Baba and Ananda Maima and Aurobindo and the mother came 
like a river of truth into my life between 1960, really 67, and now. Because I'm still trying to get, come to terms with all of this because I don't believe it's a static thing. It, you know, it grows all the time. Um, it's great that you're doing this podcast because I do believe that the concept, if you like, of, of sacred music is somewhat misunderstood. That it isn't just about people who... Now, I mean, some of the most amazing music I've ever heard was in Russian Orthodox churches. Astonishing music. Mm. So, you know, when people talk about organized religion, I'm not interested into spirituality. I say, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> There's aspects of organized religion uh, in certain places where the music is phenomenally effective. It is powerful beyond words, and it moves me every time. I have a fairly large collection of Russian Orthodox singing, and I go to it when I'm really kind of low. I go there. Because when I hear those people singing, I just forget about it, everything. Well, that's another thing, that's too. That's a long-winded though. answer. Well, but it's Melanie, a... <laughs> but, you know, sorry. Well, I think it's something we're figuring, figuring out, but uh, I think also that... Uh, back to this music as a healing force and art and culture as being this kind of circular thing in time. I mean, is that a, is that a spiritual practice to put on a Russian Orthodox record yeah. to bring yourself into a different vibration? It is for me. Um, it is for me. Uh, I also listen to Shamdas's rather hurriedly made CDs of which there are about, seven or eight or something. And I do that too, because I remember the vibe in those small rooms that he usually played in and how everybody was suddenly, even if they'd never heard of Krishna, they were gone. And amazing people came out of that, uh, like Abaka Elizabeth and, and uh, all these terrific Kirtan singers that we now have, who I met at Shamdas's, you know. Um, yes, I do believe it is a spiritual practice, but you have to be very careful because sometimes you think, okay, well, that's it. I'm listening to this, and it's wonderful, and then you switch on the TV, and it's another, uh, some kind of atrocious happening somewhere. And, you know, interesting enough, the Navajos, <laughs> when they were a powerful tribe, when the Pueblos ran that part of Southwest America, said something. They said, we can only care about the teepees that we can see. So I must have about 50 people. And those 50 we really take care of. Over the mountain over there, we can't. We don't know them, we don't see them, we can't, but these ones we have to. Mm. Now we have the whole planet, mm. and we're caring about things that are beyond words, the Yemenis atrocity, the Sudanese atrocity, mm. the Somalian atrocities. And these are now, not in Vietnam time, but now. Right. We know about all of this, and yeah. it kills us because yeah. a) we can't do anything about it, and b) we know we're paying money to tax in taxes to people to arm. I mean, America armed Saudi. Saudi bombed Yemen. Yeah. <laughs> How do you deal with that? Well, you can't deal with it by putting your head in the sand. If you want to be, you know, if you want to elect someone in 2020 who's not a moron, and find someone who cares about these things, where does the music fit into that? For me, it's a constant thing because. I go to music for, I mean, you, you use the word healing. There's no better word mm. because no matter what, 
you know, uh, even someone as, as, as crass as Mr. Rod Stewart said one time, someone interviewed him one time and said, you're such a character, you know, and it seems so happy and you're doing what you want. He said, no, I'm depressive. And so, what do you mean? He said, I'm basically a depressed guy. Uh, I'm in ecstasy on stage. I go into a bliss place on stage every single time. And surely that is transmitted, you know. I mean, it certainly was. I mean, I remember occasions. I mean, I went to see Fiona Apple once, and she was opening for, I believe, Jacob Dylan. I don't remember. It was at the garden. And this huge arena. And Fiona came out with just a piano and a guitar and sang in a soft voice. And 19,000 people were just gone because she was so human, humane, beautiful in her vibration, extraordinary. And as we're talking about women mainly, those kind of experiences are of enormous importance to me because I don't expect anything. You know, I don't really expect anything from people like Rod Stewart or, or anyone. You know, I expect a good time, good music, at its best, a little bit rebellious, etc. Hmm. You know, I mean, like the Foo Fighters or something. I don't expect spiritual enlightenment from them. I can get it maybe, but I don't expect it. <laughs> but when it comes to this line between what is basically spiritual and what is not, there is a line. I mean, I can't, you know, possibly listen to some stuff which is just blatantly misogynistic. Or I had a real problem with reggae music. I was, one, I was deeply involved in reggae music hmm. to the point of being making more films than anyone else, blah, blah, blah. And then dancehall music came in, which I loved. I loved toasting, which is what it came from, I mean, which hip-hop came from. So I used to go to these toasting dances in <laughs> Jamaica, and it was astonishing. Yeah. And then it turned vile. Then it became homophobic and misogynistic at the same time. Yeah. And I just, I said, not for me, thanks. I can't, I can't get any healing, as it were, mm. or anything out of something that says that gay people are, are, are disgusting and that women are to be used. I mean, that's evil, dark. So as soon as they started doing that, I thought, this is the end of reggae music. It wasn't. Mm. But, you know... It's pretty bad to see people actually making dark negative statements in their music rather than you don't have to be, you know, totally light and wonderful. Well, it can be difficult, I think, because I do think that, per Rod Stewart's <laughs> comment, that, uh, you know, unlike other sacred music artists, there is a, tr a, a transmuting that happens through the performance of music or, yes. or the writing or the, the singing of it that maybe the later dance hall people gave up on. The actual <laughs> transmission of the, the actual f completion of that process and yes. just gave you the feeling. Yes. As opposed to, you know, I mean, back to Krishnadas as someone who talks very openly about his dark feelings and that the, the singing, the, the surrendering to that mm. process is part of the the transformation of those feelings, and that and that back to the John Lennon and the Joni Mitchell, and that that circular kind of thing in and out of culture, in and out of the time moment, mm. taking that in, and, and the, but that's a that's a 
responsibility. I mean, yes. Does it, you know? Does, does I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. Without being, you can't tell artists what to do. It's the worst thing. But I remember filming a group called Ras Michael and the Sons of Negus, and they were what they call a groundation group, which is um, music for spiritual meditation only. And Michael and his and his band never, never did anything that wasn't that. They were just, they were like a choir, you know? But they made amazing music because they were, they were the key to reggae is the rhythm. And they were the originators, if you like, or one of the originators of that. And it always gave me great pleasure to see these guys and, you know, in an audience transfixed. And they could dance, you could dance. It wasn't like it was solemn. It was not, it was, it, but it was all based on the idea that people present here in this room where they are, or on a record, uh, would go somewhere with this that was distinct from just being a listener, listening to people enjoying themselves playing music. It, 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 that's not entirely what it's about, is it? And call and response is obviously the most, uh, the most obvious version of everybody joining in, you know. But if you, you know, I mean, going to see, um, oh, I don't know, Paul McCartney or something, where everybody knows everything, you know, and they, everybody sings together, sometimes that is so amazing. It's, it, it, it takes you out of yourself. I mean, what is, what, is, what is it to be sacred? It's to know that we are um, miraculously born into this incarnation, and there is a presiding, some kind of presiding force, energy, a presence of love in the universe, which is redemptive. And music can take you there as well as almost anything, you know. That is great. That word, the word redemptive, I think that really seals the deal on, on helping understand the like what sacred is coming through music, at least for me, the way that you just said that. Because I was recently at this guided meditation with sound <laughs> and I wanted to rip my hair out because the sound was so meaningless hmm. you know hmm. and it was it was beautiful quote-unquote I'm using quote-unquote listeners <laughs> and but it wasn't it was it was empty yes and it was meant to be empty yes because they were trying to help this group of people be empty, right? To have a meditate, quote unquote, yes, meditative yes. experience. And, and, so, and, and the, so there was no redemption. Nothing that was coming through those mm -hmm. people making that music mm -hmm. was being redeemed. They weren't sacrificing anything for me <laughs> to hear. Yes, you know? yes. They weren't having the experience with me. They were trying to give me something or... Do you know what I'm saying? I do. I do because I, I, what came into my mind just immediately when you said that was my experiences with Sufi Islamic people in, in Morocco. And I lived in a village for quite a while in the 70s, uh, which was the village of Jajuka in the foothills of the reef, the Ghibli Mountains. And the Jajuka are an entirely spiritual group of musicians and singers. And um, 
that the village was known as a place where and there was a tree in the middle of the village where they would bring what we would call schizophrenics. They didn't. It's another culture. And they would play and dance around the people. Uh, and some of them were healed. And my immediate response when I was there was, well, I need this very badly. And what I found out was that, yes, the men sang their thing, and it was incredible. But when the women sang, because it was separate, totally. And whether, you know, there were virtues and, and vices about that, but it was separate. When the women sang, uh, it was a high trill that they did. And it blew us all away because we were used to the men singing and playing these incredible instruments and drumming. But the women, and it was so amazing because I'd never been in a situation where in order to go and talk to the women or have any connection with them at all, I had to go to someone else to ask permission, you know? It was that serious. It was like, you want to talk to the women? Well, yeah, I'd like to at least say hello. And, you know, and so, we, which is what I did. And I filmed them. And they all looked, in, the, in my film, they all looked like non-human beings. They looked like angels, because they were all wearing white jalabas and, and hijabs and everything. And, and you could see only their eyes. And it just proved to me the power of, of eyes, because it didn't matter. You just got it all out of their eyes and their voice. You know, it was just incredible. Now, the men, you know, were also incredible. What was it? It was a healing experience, but the, when the women sang, it was more. It was, it was like, okay, I feel like I'm just being born or something. You know, the, there's something about this which is beyond anything that I've ever heard. And, and it was beyond anything, because they weren't singing. No one ever had recorded them before. Well, that's not, Brian Jones recorded them, and that's why we were there. And... Um, the only people who went there before us were, were um, Timothy Leary and um, uh, a, a few really special people. William Burroughs went there. And you Mick know, and this Keith experience, it, it, so many of your stories, David, this one in particular, <laughs> is one of these things where I would love to just be able to step into it. Because the, to have that experience without having, having ever had a YouTube video of a, yeah. a Sufi singer... To be able to step into that completely of the moment yes. and, and have that interaction and hear that, it feels to oh, me like such a gift. It was a gift. I never tried to do anything in my life. I'm too, I'm too lazy for that. No, I'm serious. I, 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 I have no volition. I, I like it. It's a gene that some people have and they make millions of dollars. Or they, whatever, but I don't have it, I just let it flow. So I found myself in North Africa and, and doing that. And it, why? Because National Geographic uh, decided to do a piece about Jajuka, mm -hmm. only because Mick, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards had talked about it extensively. And they sent a group of people, and then suddenly I got a phone call from one of them saying, do you want to come? Where? Jajuka. What? No, I've got <laughs> things to do. And you know, you don't have anything to do. You're, you're, you're faking it. Come with us. And I went with this group of people. And um, yes, they'd never been filmed. I don't think they'd ever been photographed. And we deliberately took a Polaroid with us mm. to give to the men and women and just shoot them and then give them the photograph. And I, I'll never forget the response. They were crying out loud. I mean, they just thought that we were bad magi magicians. I think, I don't know what they thought, but they were 
amazed by this. Mm. And we were equally amazed by their music mm. because the music was, and you can hear it, I mean, it is on record. Um, the reason I brought it up, though, was actually because of the shock that we all experienced there um, of the separation of men and women to begin with which was the first time I'd ever come across it, because I hadn't been to India at that time. And it was benign, I, I found. It wasn't, you know, they certainly weren't following them. The women were standing behind the men, and they had their own power center in those places. And, you know, uh, like the men tended the, the goats all around this place. So the men fed the, the goats. The women nurtured them in some other way so that they would never kill them. Well, occasionally they would sacrifice one actually to eat, but most of the time, <laughs> I'm sorry about that, but most of the time it was a matter of these goats being sort of symbolic for them of the mother. Because to see goats with their little kids, literally their little kids, mm. floating around this village while we're hearing Sufi Islamic chanting of the, of the most hypnotic kind imaginable, I've never been so affected by anything before or since. Yeah. Never. That was yeah. it for me. I couldn't get, you know, and I went three it times. It sounds like I'm getting it through. Oh, the... I mean, you know, it, it was just <laughs> astonishing. Yeah. And the reason this is an important podcast is because of this, because of you, of course, but also because of the fact that the placement of, of music in our society is very confused, as you said before. And I think it's very important for people who listen to you and listen to this uh, to understand that it's, it's complex but simple at the same time. It's complex because there's many forms of it and manifestations of it that are unexpected. Like for instance, Enya, I love Enya. I adore Enya. And I got laughed at years ago. People go, oh, God, you crazy, that's pop Irish. I say, no, no, she's a genius, man. It's very and, deep, and if yeah. you don't think she's a genius, then you don't know shit about music, <laughs> frankly. Because I listen to her now, I do. I mean, I, I, I listen to that music and it it's just... It's so penetrating, yeah. Oh, it's so wonderful. Mm -hmm. And you, it's a place that you don't even think about. I mean, Raga and I recorded a woman called Emer Kenny, uh, who we both were in shock about, again, because she was so different from anything that we'd ever heard, and certainly anything male. And she sang a mixture of modern music and Gaelic music. Astonishing. Like astonishing. And she was unknown. Mm. I don't know how Rago found out about her, but he did. And then we found the money to record her and, and, and do an album with her. Yeah, uh, if there's a place for differential between men and women, this is surely one of them. Where, you know, the women do, the women singers, both sacred and profane, have got something else to offer. Mm. If you think about Tina Turner, you know, and her horrendous experience uh, with her husband, who was a genius, by the way. Uh, Ike Turner basically started rock and roll, uh, rhythm and blues rock and roll. I mean, he did, uh, but he was a nightmare. And you can hear that in Tina's voice, and it can help women who are, unfortunately seem to be going through this just as much now as ever. Mm. Thank God it's becoming mm. more of a political actuality, mm. so therefore there's more consciousness about it. And even if it's just restraining uh, male uh, aggression and foolishness and worse, uh, it works. It's working. Mm. And the music is a big part of that because a lot of mm. the uh, younger artists that are coming out are very conscious about this matter, which is, a, is it sacred? 
Yes, if it, if, it, if, it, if, it, if it enables both men and women to understand that changes have to be made and the music will help because how could you not be uh, blown out of your pants by Adele, you know, for instance. When I listen to Adele, I just can't believe what I'm hearing, the power of this human being. And what man could ever conceivably say that she is anything but a, a powerhouse for both men and women? Is it sacred? This is semantics. I know this much that when I first when I first saw music that blew me away, it was really John Coltrane, and I saw him in Brighton in England, and I, I, I couldn't walk when my brother and I left the theater. Can I literally imagine. could not walk. My legs turned to jelly, and I, I was on the verge of tears the entire ride home in the car, in which case my brother was going, please be quiet. But <laughs> I was gone. You know, it was just so amazing. And that, to me, is a sacred experience. Mm-hmm. Now, someone could say, I mean, someone and he's say... And per- he specifically is, was devoted to that, being yes. a part of his own personal practice. I didn't know that, by the way, at the time. Right. But that, so that's den- undeniably his personal practice as yes. his future wives would be as well absolutely but then yeah. not always was directly no spoken through their music but was definitely uh an act of the surrender of the for lack of a better word ego <laughs> or whatever the lower consciousness sure. to allow the music to hold that well it, it, right now I mean, it's not like music before was all perfect or even all like what we're talking about. Because, I mean, in the 60s, for every Beatles, and, 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 and I keep mentioning Joni, I have to, for every one of them, there were 10 bands who <laughs> dressed up in silly outfits and sang about, you know, how much they liked their best friend's girl. And, and uh, that's fine, you know, if you're 15, but... At my advanced age, I, and for many years before then, I, I, I wanted more from the music. And Sorry about that. Uh, I should have turned it off. Um, I think a lot of people in my generation got used to the idea of John Lennon singing across the universe. And as soon as he did that, and Instant Karma, Think of it, there was a pop song out there called Instant Karma. No one had used that word before him. And I, I get into a little bit of a, a conflict with people when they say, oh, well, all the spiritual care something came out of this and came out of that. In my humble opinion, it came out of, it of pop music. And it frequently, stuff does come out of pop music. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, when I first heard... I mean, and that's what's so important. That's what, I mean, that really is what's motivating me <laughs> in this conversation to begin with and to connect with different people that I know that are pop musicians that are and that have been involved in music is to say, gosh, we need some infusion of that. Like like the uh, another guest that was on, uh, my friend Kaveh Nabatian, who's a, also a filmmaker and musician. And, you know, he brought in this piece by Fay Ruiz, a, um, uh-huh. you know, and she, she's not singing spiritual music per se, but he was talking about the unifying element of her voice on yes. the broad speakers, yes. broadcast over the, the speakers in the cities following the call to prayer and how that soulful voice was drawing people into a higher vibration 
communally. Yes. Yes. Right. So. Well, I mean, that's very important because the communal aspect of it is crucial. And we got used to the idea of musicians performing in front of people. What we didn't expect in the 60s, what I didn't expect, actually, I always thought, you know, the Beatles and Stones were my thing because I was English and I saw them and all that. But I didn't really expect it. It was all completely shocked to me that, A, when they went to India, well, what are they doing in India? Secondly, when they started writing music about it, I mean, when George started to, you know, we wrote Tomorrow Never Knows, and uh, that was, a, I guess, a Lennon song, and Within You, Without You. When I heard Within You, Without You by George Harrison and the Beatles, I knew things had progressed. But now we were talking about spiritual grasp, and that these Liverpudlians who liked football and girls and pot and booze, suddenly they were talking about the inner experience, the essential inner experience of the realization of the grasp of the divine. Oh my goodness, that changed my life. Mm. I mean, I changed my life. Mm. I was a pretty sort of slightly conscious person, but I was basically a political person. And when I heard them doing that, and then I was able to listen to interviews or whatever about that, it moved me so much because I knew that millions of people had heard it. And it, it's different. It's like it's, it, it was a... Mm a catalyst, if you like, and it, it had a penetrating effect upon the society. And, Do you um, think that there's a way for that to, to happen in Western culture today? That's, a, that's the toughest question I've ever been asked. Um, <laughs> I don't know, because I go through vicissitudes about it, because sometimes I listen to something that's now, and I go, wow, so great. I mean, just so great. There's a band called The Congos from South Africa that I listened to, who just an absolute typical white rock and roll band. And I just can't believe how good they are. But it's nothing to do with the spiritual, it's more to do with the effect they have upon your very molecular body, your biological body. That I know that, I saw Elvis, you know, and... Um, when I, when I, did you see Elvis? I saw him in 1970. The one time he came to New York, mm. he only came here once to mm. actually perform. He mm. recorded here quite mm. a bit. And it was at Madison Square Garden, and I knew the son of the person that did the album covers. Mm. So I got it. <laughs> and it, at first it was completely ridiculous. It's like this huge orchestra playing, you know, Thus Spake Zarathustra and Battle Hymn of the Republic. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, I am going to die. This is, I, why did I come and all this? And then Elvis ran onto the stage in his white outfit, and I just burst into overflowing tears and <laughs> cried for at least five minutes until my friend Stuart said, stop crying. And I, I said, I can't. I'm just overcome by, not by his presence, not by his celebrity, by his voice. And the fact that he was there 30 feet from me, a person who had completely changed my life. I mean, yeah. growing up in England, English music was just absolutely horrendous, never anything but horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, suddenly we had Little Richard and Fats Domino and Chuck Berry and the Everly Brothers and Elvis Presley, and, and it all changed. Mm. It all changed. And we had to search for it because not in BBC, they didn't recognize it. It was like devil music to them. So we had to listen to Radio Luxembourg, which was, you know, Luxembourg, and they played rock and roll. 
and you could really, hardly get it out to twiddle the knobs. Did. And everybody did it. I've read interviews with McCartney and with mm. Mick and everything saying, you know, they did the same thing I did, which was just twiddle the knobs endlessly. Until I'm we got surprised regular. you could get Luxem Luxembourg over across the pond. We got it. <laughs> and then I started listening to Little Richard and James Brown and, and so on. The next wave of that was ours. It was British uh, coupled with, you know, American rhythm and blues. So certainly Diana Ross and Marvin Gaye and Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett and all those guys had this effect on me of making me feel so much better about my life, so mm. much better about being a human being. I, I can't describe it any better See, than that. See, so much of this is about the receptivity of the audience. You know, back yes. what you were saying about the circular in the time, the time, and so, and with, with the with Elvis being, you know, such a force out of nowhere, that that's the question of this moment. Um, that you know, you said was the most difficult question you've been asked. I mean, I. I feel really proud of that. <laughs> no, but, I'm, uh, serious. I'm serious. I can't answer the question because but I, I don't it's know. A, but that's such a huge part of it, I feel, is back to something you said earlier about just being inundated. There's, you know, there, there isn't the moment to step into the Sufi temple and have that experience without first researching it or following them on Instagram on yes. your phone for a year yes. before you actually go to have the physical transmission of that experience. So I just am curious... Are we going to be able to draw uh, draw ourselves together through some sort of cultural effect? If we can differentiate it amid the noise. Because I know, I mean, I use it. You know, somebody says to me, oh, check out this this, this uh, YouTube of, of the Yardbirds in 1965. And I do. Or, you know, or Venya, or anyone. And just go to it. Oh, there it is on my computer. Oh, it's fantastic. When it was at its most intense between 64 and 69, shall we say, it was impossible to find anything. I mean, you just bought the album, but that was it. You were very lucky if you got into a concert. You're very... Now it's all, it's all available. Like the Akashic record of, of art is all there. So if you want to see you know, anything, you can usually find it. And most people, when they communicate with you, they say, well, you can see it on YouTube. Is that good or bad? When I used to teach filmmaking at the School of Visual Arts, I always started off with two things. One was if to the women in my class, it's pretty much always 50-50, I'd say if anybody asks you to make a film and says it's when they're not paying you and they don't have anything for it except you, try it for a couple of days. And if anybody comes on to you, leave the project immediately and report them. And I'd said that very seriously, you know, I felt self-righteous about it, but I knew I had much experience in this, of people doing all kinds of horrible things to 18-year-old women. So I said, that's the first thing. Uh, second thing is a question. If something is not precious, can it be precious? In other words, if you can see it everywhere, hear it everywhere, on your iPod as it was at the time, or on YouTube, does it make it accessible, therefore wonderful, or too accessible and losing its magic. And I got all kinds of responses from people. Some people were highly enthusiastic about the fact that they could see something on YouTube. Uh, the first thing about sexual harassment, I did it because I'd seen it with my own eyes. Very, oh my God. And I was brought up in a house with two sisters and my mother and to me, honestly, the whole thing was ridiculous that any man could think that this was okay. And a lot of us do feel that and still feel it and are very moved by the amazing stuff that's going on right now. Um, 
wow, thank God. But isn't this half of the answer to your difficult question? <laughs> that if something like that can emerge, uh, now, there's a great deal of hypocrisy about it. The President of the United States, I won't go any further, and many others seem to be impervious to this because they do genuinely believe, they genuinely believe that it's okay to oppress women. Not that it's acceptable, but not great, but it's okay. And it's so, even, it's even uh, predestined per whichever yes. verse they take out of whichever book they choose to take That's out of. That's changed forever. Yeah. It can't, we can't go back. This is not gonna, it's going to be a struggle for a long time, but it's not going back. There's this kind of a parallel thing to that in terms of answering your question. That came out of almost nowhere. I mean, it, it's millions of women have been thinking about it for thousands of years. Some accepted it because they just had to, and some didn't. And then now we have a sudden torrent of, of the raising of individuated human interaction, interplay of a basic fundamental nature which has changed already people. Because even if it's just as low level as I won't harass her because she may report me, good, that's better than what was before, which is, you know, I'll not report you because you'll fire me. Now you will report me. So that's good. In music, and particularly in music that affects consciousness, something can always happen that is completely unpredictable, that comes out of nowhere. And certain artists suggest that uh, even now, and there are lots of unknown men and women out there making music that we don't know, and sometimes we come across it. There's this woman who's called PJ, I guess that's her name, uh, who I saw perform about a year ago. She opened for somebody, and I was not interested in the, in the, in the main act because I wanted to meet her, and I wanted to get her CD. And it's funny because on the Internet, on Facebook, my friend Stephanie, uh, a few months ago, wrote, uh, has anybody heard of this woman, BJ? I, I mean, I, I, I'm just obsessed with her. Is anybody out there? And I wrote to her and said, yeah, I saw her, and I was amazed. I'd never heard of her, and she was powerful, and somehow there was a spiritual underlay to her music, you know. Um, so that was a surprise to me, and I'm not big knowledgeable about current music, really, uh, but, you know, but there isn't... So it's something that's a little bit lying... It, it is still lying on the individual I to, to so. turn the radio dial to Luxembourg radio. Like, yeah, you still have I to fine-tune so. your antenna out to find that thing yes. that's out there. And somehow that will generate potentially its own, its own counterculture or its own kind yes. of tribe or group of teepees <laughs> together. Yes. Yeah. I believe that... that but these... Elvis was transcendent. I mean, Elvis wiped the whole yes, slate a across anybody that ever heard him. But you, that's coupled with TV, so, I mean... TV, and but, I mean, it's worth remembering that Elvis was, was enamored with Yogananda and read uh, Autobiography uh, Yogi many times, hmm. that he absolutely thought that Yogananda was the greatest person that ever lived. I actually this didn't know Elvis that about Presley him. I didn't know this. that. And I mean, I know this because I worked on an Elvis oh. project many years ago, and then I read a book called uh, Elvis, the Spiritual Seeker, and I learned even more. I mean, he was ruined by, really, by Americana and by his manager. He was ruined. He did 30 God knows how many films. They were pretty much all awful. His music deteriorated, 
and he became a, a mockery, a cartoon, and then a dead man. And that's sad, but it happened. That doesn't happen as much now. Let's get back to just one basic point, which is that, you know, sacred can mean a lot of things. But for me, what it means is intimations of immortality, to quote Wordsworth, intimations of immortality. That suddenly you're struck by the fact that this life is just a short moment and then it's gone. And what's left? What's after that? What's before that? What's going on here? And, you know, uh, my friend Dina, who you know, wrote this remarkable book about reincarnation or about her actual completely clear memories or presentiments. She's of, coming on with her, her new book, Sita. Yes, they're exciting. Yeah. Uh, see her tomorrow. Okay. That is a woman writing about a, a, an iconic deity. And that's amazing. Amazing. But now, you know, can there be... First of all, let's just go back a bit. Um, I think that Beethoven or Schubert, I'm talking about my favorites, or Schumann, mainly male, unfortunately, but that, that, that's the way it was, that that music has not changed one iota. It was first played for a little court scene with a bunch of people in weird clothes listening and, and gossiping about other people in the court, and Mozart was playing his little... Uh, and now, you, you know, you put on Beethoven's middle string quartets and late string quartets, and they're just as powerful as they were all those hundreds of years ago. Maybe, maybe, that Bob Marley and Peter Tosh and John Lennon and Joan Baez and Bonnie Raitt and all these pop singers uh, are the pinnacle of that. And that it will just always be penetrating somehow and there'll be cycles of flow. The difference now is actually, I do believe the presence of Kirtan, that the fact that people now know in, cre in increasing numbers that they can go to a, a place and be a participant in the call and response tradition uh, is relatively new. I mean, you think about it, it's new. And it's happening all over. Just look at where who comes to see KD in Moscow or in Australia, wherever. They come. And they come because they feel something very special and it's happening. And it's available to them and they're part of it. When was that happening before, except in, in India? And, 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 you know, yeah, there was Kowali music in what is now Pakistan, and there was sacred Sufi music in and blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't all call and response. It was usually a master singing and people listening. But then the Kirtan tradition is not about that, and it's an extremely democratic and, and, and non-discriminating experience whereby anybody can just come in and sing those words and, and actually be taught those words within one session. And it's, again, this... this, uh, this feeding in and out, the, the circular thing of giving and receiving in yeah. that moment. It's crucial. I mean, it's crucial. And it's happening now. Yeah. And even though I've been talking to you about pop music because I've been so involved in it in my life, I do believe that, you know, uh, if it weren't for kirtan, my life would be so impoverished in some ways. I don't go to many kirtans because I'm, I'm, I don't know why, I'm lazy. But I, I know <laughs> that even at home, I will join in with an album sometimes. And that it's an experience that many... I mean, I have this friend, I won't mention him because I need, I would need his position, his permission, but he's a, a, a writer and critic and an extraordinarily worldly guy 
who was once an editor of Vanity Fair and is, is an extraordinary writer and, and so on, but you would never think of him as spiritual. But if you go to a Katie performance in, in Kirtan in Manhattan, he's always there. Hmm. And I didn't know this until he actually wrote about it in his column. Hmm. He said, I don't know whether any of you have heard about Krishnadas, but you should go to see Krishnadas. And I called him on the phone. I said, what the? How do you? you know? and, and, and then I saw him several times at KD. And that in itself hmm. is proof in the pudding that people who are supposedly out of that loop, out of that circularity, can enter that circle at any time. And then they don't usually leave. Well, and it's this, and it's the, this encompassing thing with time. What, what was the quote, the Wordsworth quote that you gave about time, sacred and time? Well, I've forgotten. But. <laughs> you just said it, you said it at the start of that, but it was, it was, I'm, I'm, I'm like, we're tying this all in because the piece that we listened to, the thing that, you know, that really struck me about it beyond its simplicity was it is suspended in time. And that, that's partially oh. the Indian music and the, and the rhythm and how everything is there. But there's this, suspension in of t- of time through it you're not you're not ABAing to the end to the crescendo to the build to right. the climax right. to get out and and so something about i feel like what what you're bringing to this conversation for me is this idea of of uh transcendence of of time and and relating to time differently and how being in the sacred is is a big part of that. You said something about how it, it, you remember that this is just this life is just one piece of this giant long flow, and that, that music gives you that opportunity to do that. So if you're mm-hmm. whoever is leading you in that, whoever is singing that for you or, or playing that for you, <laughs> if they are tuned into that aspect of consciousness when they're giving you that, mm. well, yes. I mean, I'm going to say to yes, you know, that just from personal experience, um, my musical uh, experiences have been sort of like 75 or 80% great because you choose who you're going to go see and so on. Sometimes they're not that great. You go and you go, oh, I, I'm leaving. I've left, maybe my whole life, I've left four concerts. So most of the time you're choosing something which will, why do you go? I mean, why do, you, why do you go either to a kirtan or to a performance? I mean, I, I, I never liked Tom Petty until I filmed him in 1979. And then I had to pay attention to all the songs he sang, to his amazing band, and to his amazing presence. And I was just, oh my God, how ignorant am I? I did not like him. I thought he sounded like Roger McGuinn of the Birds, and he copped the whole thing from Dylan. I, I was very nasty and weird about it. Alone, I didn't tell anyone. And then I saw him, and he was great, you know. And the same, I could say the same for Fiona Apple. A surge comes through your body. A surge of love, of just, I'm glad to be alive. This is great. I mean, you know, that Mm. is almost not available in any other context except that of quiet uh, absorption, either in a temple or a church or at home. Different, it's a different thing. The thing that comes to me is very visceral, but it can turn into anything. Because I know that, I just know that when you leave those armor things, you know, you walk out of those sort of weird hotels, she does her thing, and the last one was, you know, and it's all that kind of carpets on the wall, and, and, you know, all this strange hotel 
atmosphere. And every time I come out of it, I just can't talk. I don't want to talk. I leave. I get in a car or a train or whatever, and I just can't. I don't want it changed. I don't want it to go away. It's incredibly important to me. And so that's the supreme version of it. I don't know. I mean, you know, my friend Sridhar, who helped Ama in the early days tremendously, he was at the last Ama thing I went to. And he said to me, you know how few people actually appreciate Ama as a masterful singer? So many people don't even, they don't think about that. They think, oh, she's the hugging saint. Well, I don't get the hug anymore because I don't want to wait till five in the morning. <laughs> it's enough. Her music yeah. slays me. It mm. just reduces me to a pinpoint of, of, of light. Just all the, the weird stuff that's roving, always roaming around my head and stuff, you know, oh, I got to meet that lawyer, or I do this, or I, I don't like that person I used to like, or I can go on obviously forever. In that room, at that time, it is a sacred experience of the highest kind for me. One of the best experiences I've ever had was um, when Shyamdas and Krishnadas played at Armour, mm. uh, at the old Hammerstein Center. And, you know, Sham came on and, and did his thing, you know, and then uh, Krishnadas came on and did a short set. And then uh, Dina Merriam came on for a moment and was celebrated by the Arma organization for her work in in India and Africa, and then Arma. And it was astonishing. Yeah. Because everybody, including Krishnadas, was so we were all so, oh my God, this is this is the closest we made. I'm not speaking of KD, I'm speaking of myself. The closest maybe I'm ever gonna come to release of all individuated preoccupations and obsessions. And I yearn for that. That's all I care about these days, you know what I mean? Because there comes a point To be in that state. To be in that state. To be in that state, state. yeah. And even to be in that state, Mm. you know, at times which are counterintuitive. Yeah. You know, like on the subway. And so that's a great... That is a... (laughs) An act of holding that space. Music, yeah. Music is an act of holding that space. Exactly. Well put. I mean, that's one of the rare things, which is a real catalyst. Now, whether it goes away when you walk out on the street and, and, and there's weirdness going on or something, but the test really, isn't it, is that uh, Ramdas says this all the time in one form or another, that your, your life is, your, is, your, is your, 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 what? your destiny spiritually more than that odd room you go in and those people your sing. Your karma is your dharma, he said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was in a car service a couple of weeks ago, and um, when I got in it, the music was really loud. It wasn't Uber, but it was like Uber. And the driver was um, from the Dominican Republic. And as soon as I got in the car, he said to me, oh, uh, do you want me to turn it off? I said, no, no, I, I, I like reggaeton. He said, you know about reggaeton? I said, yeah, I love reggaeton. I've loved it since it started. I, 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 I love those guys. And he said, okay, do you want to hear it loud? I said, yeah, 11, put it on. And yeah. we rode from up there to Midtown listening to loud reggaeton music. We didn't talk. And, yeah. you know, and uh, every so often he turned around and said, are you sure? I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do, play it, man. It yeah. blows my mind, this music. I just think it's so, mm. 
invigorating somehow. I mean, I know it's not about Christian, and I know it's probably about things that, I, you know, but well, it doesn't matter. It, it, it elevated me. When I got out of that car, I looked at him, and I said, thank you very much. And he went, thank you. I've never had a passenger that said that. I said, well, you're looking at a strange individual here, but yes, incredible. Yeah. And then I got in another car coming home, and the guy was playing solid Beethoven. I, I said, do you always listen? He said, I can only drive if it's classical. I, if I put on that other music, I crash. He was, you know, from Bangladesh. And he said, I need this. And, and mm -hmm. to me, that was sacred, because we're driving on a highway at 70 miles an hour. I don't know this individual. He doesn't know me. And maybe he's the worst driver in the world. But if he's playing Beethoven, I somehow trust him. <laughs> <laughs> and that link, in linking him to the divine math, even, of the well, music of yes. that coming yes. through to, ho to hold you on, on, on your journey. Totally. But yeah, to that totally. story, the, um, there's this woman who has a whole uh, film series and recording and book series on Kabir music, and she traveled around oh. Pakistan and India. It's called The Kabir Project. I highly recommend oh. you check it out. And recording all these different folk singers singing Kabir songs. And, mm. and I can put those recordings on and instantly change the molecular structure of whatever environment yes. I'm in yeah. and any, and anything. And I, I can walk down the street listening to it, it levitating, mm. you know, mm. just from the power of the love and the joy and the voice yeah. and the purity of the singing, which can happen with, with pop music is it can happen with the stones for me as well. Yeah. But there's something, um, I guess this is the, the thing I'll, I'll leave us to wrap on for your insight into borrowing that am i borrowing that sacred spiritual power from those kabir singers or is it mine you know that is the ultimate statement because yes it is yours and and why is it yours because karmically you're receptive spiritually ready for that and that's why those Kabir singers or Kowali singers or whatever, they really do do it with the exception of maybe a few for the people and, and it is a, a mission and, and it's the same if you go into a Baptist church somewhere and, and hear a bunch of gospel singers, you know, they enjoy it, they love it, but they ain't getting paid, they're not getting filmed, they're not on MTV and there never will be and it doesn't matter. They, they're, they're servants. They're servants of God for you. They're serving it up to you, as it were. So I do think it's yours. Can we actually physically or um, can we artistically borrow? Yes, you know, um, we can. Uh, there, are, there are good examples of that, of people taking a, a genre, and uh, Paul Simon did it. A lot of people hated him for it when he brought out that Graceland album. People were on his case like, you white murderer, is what they basically said. And I didn't, I'd, I'd read these things, then I bought the album, listened to it, and was entranced by it. And thought, Paul Simon, my God, you really absorbed this. And then people got on him and said, yeah, you went to South Africa and found those guys and paid them nothing. And What's wrong with these people? We all borrow. Elvis couldn't have existed without Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker. And the Beatles couldn't have existed without Elvis. 
and, and you know, Krishnadas couldn't have existed without people he'd heard uh, in Kenshi or, or in, in Brindavan or wherever that sang that music, and then he was captivated by it and learned it. And Katie's a scholar, so he really did learn the music. So was he borrowing it? Yes. But then think of all the thousands of people who benefited from that, that borrowing. You know? So I think it is yours. And thank you for having me on your show. <laughs> thank you so much, David. It's really a pleasure. Thank you. From Ram Dass to Sharon Salzberg, Be Here Now Network is home to over 17 amazing podcasts. But we can't do it without your continued support. Donate at BeHereNowNetwork.com slash fundraiser to receive an exclusive gift and help us continue to deliver over five fresh podcasts each week.